Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you had a great Christmas holiday, no matter where you live in the world, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere. But I hope all of you had a um, joyous holiday, um, no matter whom you were spending uh, the festivities uh, with. My wife and I had a good uh, Christmas holiday, got to be with uh, both sets of families. Uh, we're very fortunate that um, not only that my parents and my wife's parents live nearby, but we don't have to uh, worry about uh, flipping a coin as to where we'll be from one holiday um, after the other. So uh, I know not everyone's uh, fortunate, um, and especially given that the circumstances um, that uh, that the world itself is facing with regards to COVID and the variants and all and how that has impacted uh, daily travel. Um, it's never a good thing to take any of that stuff for granted because sadly it has um, disrupted um, a lot of what we had been accustomed to for so long up until um, last year. But uh, w here we are again uh, discussing uh, Harlow Giles Unger's uh, Thomas Paine and the uh, Clarion Call for American Independence. You know, when I was on the air uh, a couple of uh, nights back, um, or rather days, I should say, it was a Christmas Eve day. I remember I was on the air last. I remember uh, discussing about whom uh, Thomas Paine um, came into contact with being a Robert Aitken. And that fellow by the name of Robert Aitken was the one that um, gave Thomas Paine the job of becoming uh, editor of the uh, Pennsylvania Gazette. And membership uh, rose dramatically. I mean, it didn't even get anywhere close to a thousand members when uh, Payne became editor. But uh, by the time he has become editor and established himself, they have the magazine itself has over fifteen hundred subscribers, and then the number grows uh, dramatically within a short period of time to where it exceeds well above 1500 so sometimes it all comes down to the right people at the right time who can go about reinventing a magazine to where um, anything is uh, possible and obviously that has uh, shown uh, because you know Thomas Paine um, is one of those uh, radical thinkers who believes that any topic should be open for discussion even if it's going to be something uh, sensitive where he already knows that there are certain people that can't be pleased about the subject itself. He knows that the matters themselves do need to be discussed in order to ensure that uh, people from all um, outlets or from all walks of life would be able to have uh, their voices be heard. So in this uh, podcast segment, we're going to learn about um, an assortment of uh, things not just an assortment of things, but the assortment of things that lead up to that um, famous document, or I wouldn't say so much document, but a famous piece of work by Paines that would have um, major significance in America, and maybe not just in America alone. It could this uh, piece of work that he will um, write uh, perhaps has potential to reach other parts of the world. So uh, let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready for another um, episode of um, Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence. So our first uh, leadoff question uh, will be the following. What was America's largest city prior to and around the start of the 1770s? I'll give you some choices. Is it choice A, New York? 
Is it choice B, Philadelphia? Is it choice C, Charleston, South Carolina? Or is it choice D, Boston, Massachusetts? So you got four um, choices there. You got two of the choices being from middle colonies, one from a northern colony, and the other from a southern colony in terms of um, cities. The answer is choice B, uh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia was America's uh, largest city prior to and around the start of the 1770s. What do you think the population of Philadelphia is by the start of the 1770s? I'll give you a number. It's between uh, 25 and 40,000. Anybody want to take a guess at what they think is the correct number, given that uh, the range I've provided is between 25 and 40,000? The answer is uh, 30,000. So Philadelphia is home to 30,000 people, and at the same time, it has become one of America's most vital ports. That's not to say that the port of Boston, Massachusetts is vital. It's not to say that the port of New York is essential too, or the port of uh, Charleston, South Carolina. All of those cities that I've uh, mentioned a moment ago in terms of uh, choices for what city in America being the largest city was, all four of those cities play a vital role with um, the comings and goings of commerce entering into those cities and leaving out of. And if any of you all want to take a guess at exactly how many people say we're living in Charleston, South Carolina, I can tell you that uh, based upon what Harlow Giles Unger wrote, there was about 12,000 uh, people in Charleston. You had about uh, 20,000 in New York City, and, is, and for Boston, Massachusetts, it was about 16,000. But Philadelphia is the granddaddy of them all right now with uh, 30,000 people. Whom had uh, Thomas Paine um, gotten to know not long after becoming the Pennsylvania Magazine editor? Did he meet someone, another uh, individual who um, was very well known in the greater Philadelphia community? Yes. This man's name is Dr. Benjamin Rush. And he is a very well-respected uh, physician He's very good friends with Benjamin Franklin, that is Dr. Rush. But um, it turns out that Dr. Rush had met Thomas Paine while looking around at a local Philadelphia bookstore. So it's just one of those freak coincidences where two men who will go on to play um, essential roles during this time frame meet one another. They don't even realize just yet what potential one another has. Of course, Benjamin Rush is already a doctor, but he will soon come to discover just how uh, significant of a role Thomas Paine will play. Thomas Paine and Dr. Benjamin Rush were both well-connected to Benjamin Franklin. Okay, we've established that. But it turns out that Thomas Paine and Benjamin Rush have some very unique things in common. Each man had come from a working-class family in small communities. So, in other words, neither one of these men uh, were born into uh, wealth. Each man achieved academic successes, mostly on their own. And with Franklin's, with Franklin's support, that is, you know, Benjamin Franklin um, was behind them 100% in whatever um, 
endeavors they wish to pursue. However, if there is one thing that Thomas Paine and Benjamin Rush were very, very ardent um, supporters on, and many others would join them, I would have to say if I had to pick a third person who was an ardent supporter, a non-Pennsylvanian, but who hails north of Pennsylvania, that's Samuel Adams of Massachusetts. Thomas Paine and Benjamin Rush are ardent supporters behind the idea of separation from England. So Samuel Adams has every reason not to feel as though he's alone. Of course, he hasn't met Thomas Paine just yet, or Dr. Benjamin Rush, but it is good to know that there are other forefathers out there who are very, very ardent about wanting to separate from England. Prior uh, to Thomas Paine's arrival in late November of 1774, what took place two months earlier? Does anybody want to know what took place two months earlier? Based upon previous podcast topics, this has come up. And maybe some of it might um, be um, of good uh, relevance, especially from the most previous um podcast series we discussed. Well, I can tell you this much, 1774 um, was um, was a tough year, given that 1773 ended with the Boston Tea Party movement, where um, seven dozen men uh, peacefully went aboard the Beaver, the Eleanor, and the Dartmouth and dumped 342 chests of tea into Boston Bay. Parliament passed a series of um, intolerable acts. Of course, in America, they refer to them as the coercive acts, but Parliament passed a series of, in, of intolerable acts. Um, one in particular was the uh, Boston Port Act, which pretty much closed the entire port of Boston, and the port itself was relocated to uh, Salem. So pretty much all of Boston is left without work. But it's not so much these um, intolerable acts that Parliament has passed, but in response to the intolerable acts, delegates from 12 colonies have arrived to Philadelphia. And why are they arriving to Philadelphia, folks? To attend a Continental Congress gathering where they're going to discuss a handful of things, most notably about the intolerable acts. But... In order for the Intolerable Acts to have any significant relevancy to discuss, a group of uh, men in Massachusetts, in Suffolk County, which is right around the outskirts of Boston, a group of men um, came up with what's called the Suffolk County Resolves. These resolves were instituted... um, by men such as Samuel Adams, Dr. Joseph Warren, Paul Revere, James Otis Jr., just to name a handful of uh, unique uh, prominent men from Massachusetts. And, of course, we can't forget about John Hancock and John Adams. These men instituted the Suffolk Resolves as a means of denouncing what Parliament had enacted um, under the Intolerable Acts. And it wasn't just the Port Act, which led to the uh, closure of, of the Port of Boston. 
If there was one other act that ought to be discussed that fell under the Intolerable Acts, it was the Massachusetts Government Act, which had stripped the people's rights to freely elect members to the governor's executive council. So Massachusetts was one of those unique colonies, folks, that um, had allowed its citizens under the charter from dating back to 1691, had, had allowed, the charter had allowed its citizens to freely elect members to the governor's executive council, or what would normally have been referred to in Virginia as a council of state, which was an eight-member body that advised the governor of, um, of, ex of uh, critical matters on, and not only advised the governor of those critical matters, but how to proceed forward so that, in this case, the Commonwealth of Virginia would, um, would uh, prosper, not just prosper, but would... Um, but would benefit from the uh, decisions um, made by the governor and his council. But under the Government Act, uh, Parliament pretty much had stripped the people's rights to freely elect members to the governor's executive council. And Parliament, as a result of stripping the people's rights, now placed all the power in the king's hands, being King George III, to where George III himself had absolute control behind appointing to dismissing council members without the consent of the people of Massachusetts. So he could appoint John Smith tomorrow, but a month or two from now, King George III out of nowhere could ask that John Smith be dismissed because John Smith did not make a decision that was um, favorable to where the crown would benefit. And if that was bad enough, folks, the Massachusetts Governor Government Act also prohibited town meetings from taking place without the governor or let alone the royal governor's consent. So prior to this uh, Massachusetts Government Act, um, Massachusetts townspeople had, um, had tremendously benefited from town meetings, but Parliament sees town meetings as being uh, irrelevant, useless. And in their eyes, maybe like the equivalent of a waste of taxpayer dollars. So Parliament is now going to dismiss the town meetings from taking place, with the only exception of when the royal governor himself will approve of those meetings to take place. So the First Continental Congress is um, totally against these intolerable acts. Pretty much everyone is. But is it fair to say that... Um, that anyone from the First Continental Congress is advocating separation from England. That is an all-out separation. Well, I do know of um, a couple of delegates who would be, but even those delegates have been warned from within um, by others from within their region to be careful as to how far they ought to be exercising their minds when it, with regards to separation from England. If there's one man who's going to have to be reminded of what to say and what not to say regarding the notion behind separation from England, it would be none other than Mr. Samuel Adams. So the First Continental Congress um, sees unanimous support behind implementing what's called a non-importation non trade agreement, which means that all imported goods coming, from, coming in from England were to be opposed. A trade embargo that would go into a place for an extended time period. So this is one of the first steps now towards where 
if we don't want to accept imported goods coming from England, what should we do instead, folks? Make our own goods. In other words, make our own goods domestically rather than rely upon them from a foreign country that it would have to ship them 3,000 miles to ship those goods 3,000 miles across the ocean. So this uh, trade embargo or what we call a non-importation agreement is going to um, is going to go into play for uh, for about a good nine or ten months. But they have decided that if in the event Parliament does not um, follow through with its um, decision on, um, how do I say it? They've pretty much said that, look, Parliament needs to get its act together and come up with some better solutions. And, and if they come up with some better solutions on their end, then we can uh, revoke this non-importation agreement altogether. So, you know, 12 colonies met, delegates from 12 colonies, that is, only one didn't come. Does anybody want to know which colony did not send any delegates to the First Continental Congress? Was it um, Rhode Island? Was it uh, Delaware? Or was it Georgia? The answer is choice C, folks, Georgia. And why, is, why did Georgia not send any delegates to uh, the First Continental Congress? Because Georgia is in the midst of fighting a war with the Creek Indian Nation. So if they're in the midst of fighting a uh, war with, the, with an Indian nation, who, does, who do the people of Georgia need support from? And who does the royal governor need the support from? He, they all need the support of the crown. And if you live in Georgia, you're going to need the support of the crown to help, um, to help you all stay um, safe uh, from Indian uprisings along the frontier. And believe it or not, folks, at this time, even western places well west of Savannah are considered the frontier or the back country of Georgia. So yes, uh, Georgia is going to need um, all sorts of assistance in uh, fighting off the uh, Creek Indian Nation. Now, what takes place in Philadelphia uh, three weeks after the first shots had been fired at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts? Three... Remember, folks, the shots that were fired at Lexington and Concord happened on April the 19th of 1775. But what takes place in Philadelphia three weeks after those first shots had been fired? May of 1775 saw a Second Continental Congress convene in Philadelphia. And who's taking the lead now at this uh, Second Continental Congress? Is it someone from one of the northern colonies? Uh, from the middle colonies or the southern? Well, it's a northerner, and his name is Mr. John Adams of Massachusetts. He proposed a handful of uh, unique uh, measures that were very, very uh, vital. He proposed that Congress uh, go about strengthening the number of forces laying ground to Boston, okay? Um, so he, he wants to add... Um, more men um, to the existing uh, forces. He would also, he's also wanting to persuade Congress, or he goes about persuading Congress to form troops into what is called a continental army. So in other words, a continental army, folks, is an army that's going to encompass everyone from, um, from all 13 colonies. We may not be sending men right away from from North and South Carolina up to Massachusetts, 
but a continental army itself will be one that can promote greater identity, uh, greater unity for a, um, for a greater cause because, um, yes, shots have already been fired, but it's fair to say that there are many in the Continental Congress whom already know that it's just a matter of time before um, separation from England will have to officially take place. However, you know, not everyone can just say it right away. There are plenty of people in Philadelphia who want reconciliation. For them, war is a last resort, and we'll talk about some of that here momentarily. But anyways, for John Adams... He has proposed that Congress strengthen the number of forces laying uh, ground to Boston, along with persuading Congress to form troops into a continental army, kind of like the equivalent of a United States army. And he also um, is the one that appoints George Washington of Virginia as the continental army commander. John Adams firmly believed that a Virginian was the right fit to command the continental army. I think I know the reason for that. It might be an odd one, but it, it, it does bear a lot of truth. Isn't it fair to say that Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies? Remember, folks, Virginia goes all the way to the present-day Northwest Territory of Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin. Virginia, Virginia's territory goes all the way north into the Great Lakes. So is it fair to say that Virginia has the most to gain, but yet the most to lose? So why not have someone uh, who, for one, has military experience, but two, who comes from the largest um, of the 13 colonies. And by being in the largest of the 13 colonies, and yes, while Virginia may be a southern colony, Virginia also borders um, Maryland, Delaware. Think about it, states that are middle colonies. So Virginia can pull from both north and south. So Virginia is the perfect choice to have a leader like none other than George Washington as the um, Continental Army commander. Shortly after Lexington and Concord battles, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and, and, New, and, the, and New Hampshire, those three colonies, sent a total of 8,500 men to join Boston, or to, they sent a total of 8,500 men to join the Massachusetts uh, Minutemen um, in preventing the British from escaping uh, Boston via inland with the exception by sea. So in other words, the objection now here was to keep um, British troops secured in Boston to where they could not escape Boston by land. And the only way you could really have escaped Boston by land was going through that Boston Neck because that Boston Neck being that narrow isthmus or what we call a neck, where there's only one way in and one way out. So the bottom line is, if the British are going to escape Boston, it's the only way they could do it is by sea. And what's important about June 17th, 1775? Well, the Battle of Bunker Hill, which is just on the outskirts of Boston, takes place. This was one of those battles where there was no turning back. Now, was George Washington at Bunker Hill? No. However, was George Washington named commander of the Continental Army before Bunker Hill or shortly after? He was named the commander um, shortly after. 
The Battle of Bunker Hill takes place June 17, 1775. So who is the really the makeshift commander of this um, American army? We don't. It's not considered the Continental Army just yet, but who is the makeshift commander? Is it Nathaniel Green? Is it Horatio Gates? Or is it Dr. Joseph Warren? The answer is choice C, Dr. Joseph Warren. For those of you who were with me when we did uh, last year, uh, we focused on a book last year uh, written by Christian de Spigna, uh, Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's uh, Forgotten Hero. Well, yes, Dr. Joseph Warren was uh, the head um, commanding officer at this battle. The British objective, uh, real quick, was to um, to take over a redoubt on a hill where all of the men from Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New Hampshire joined forces and fighting, um, and fighting against the British. The British had sent um, roughly about 20 boats of men by water to um to what you call the uh landing dock that would uh once they got off the boats where not all thousands of british soldiers went up the hill at the same time but they would sit, but they sent a, one drove of soldiers up and they got slaughtered and how did they get slaughtered folks well they it, basically the mission was suicide i mean we were mowing down forces left and right and how do we do it by aiming low and not just by aiming low but once the soldiers got to about within 150 to 200 yards continental forces fired on them and that's when they started getting mowed down left and right they fired low to where the the objective was to hit them around their knees by hit by shooting at their knees and they fell there was no way that, that the opposition, being the British, would get back up and fight. So after two um, attempts in vain on the part of the British, their forces are pretty much uh, slaughtered. Believe it or not, folks, the British went up a third time. To me, that's even more dangerous than the first two uh, failed attempts. I hate to say this, but the British prevailed. How could they have prevailed knowing that they have lost so many men? Sadly, our forces ran out of ammunition. And because we ran out of ammunition, we had no other choice but to, um, to vacate um, the redoubt on top of um, Bunker Hill. And sadly, uh, Dr. Joseph Warren lost his life. He pretty much got everyone else evacuated what was left of him and a few other uh, officers. But Dr. Joseph Warren was one of the first um, left at the redoubt who sadly lost his life. He was, um, he was shot, shot right above his left eye and killed on impact. So if you uh, have a chance to read uh, Founding uh, Martyr, it's uh, definitely worth the read. But this, uh, the British may have won at Bunker Hill, but it, it came at a pyrrhic cost. What is a pyrrhic, what does pyrrhic mean? Well, pyrrhic meaning that, it can mean a lot of things. Pyrrhic meaning um, dreadful, um, terrible. Um, it was um, aghast. In other words, you may have won the battle, but look at how many lives you all lost 
just to get to the top of the uh, redoubt. So the British lost nearly over lost nearly close to 1,100 men, mostly officers. We uh, the Americans pretty much uh, killed about a quarter of the um, British army that day. So the victory for the British was a direct result of the Patriot forces having become depleted in ammunition as the third and final British assault up the hill, up the hilltop, uh, pretty much commenced with bayonets fixed on the British end. Once the British knew that, okay, we're not going to go up the hill anymore without any bayonets fixed. The only way now to intimidate these guys is to fix our bayonets and go at them full force. That's what happened. All right, well, our next question is the following here. What Pennsylvania delegate of uh, Quaker faith had persuaded Congress to send George III, or rather I should say King George III, a request known as the Olive Branch Petition? His name is Mr. John Dickinson. I've mentioned his name quite a bit, not only from this uh, podcast series, but from other ones. Mr. John Dickinson is a very, very brilliant man. He's a lawyer. And he's a politician, or which what we would call an assemblyman or delegate from Pennsylvania. But John Dickinson is a political moderate. He, he advocates reconciliation with the crown, but he also adamantly supported the notion that Parliament not pass further legislation deemed hostile to the subjects, to their subjects, a.k.a. the 13 colonies. So in other words, John Dickinson did not like what Parliament had done when they enacted the Stamp Act, as well as the Townshend duties. Dickinson was totally against all that. But what Dickinson does not want is an all-out war with the mother country. Dickinson, and remember this, folks, John Dickinson um, sees this in terms of relationship with the um, subjects, being the colonies, and the crown. The crown represents an apron. And, there, and of course, with any, with any kind of apron, you have to tie it into a knot. Who represents the knot? The knot is the colonies. The knot is what um, ties the colonies and their um, and the country above them, being their um, being their the mother country, England. It it, it, um, it ties them together as one. What happens when the knot becomes undone? Once the knot becomes undone, it's very hard to undo the relationship that had existed peacefully for so many years prior to um, the unrest that has now um, subsided. So for John Dickinson, once the knot becomes undone, it's hard, it would be very hard to go back and, um, and request that, that the relationship be restored. He knows that, um, he knows that things are not good at the moment, but he believes that reconciliation is the best way to resolve the problem. Thomas Paine, on the other hand, opposed John Dickinson's Olive Branch petition proposal. I don't think that should come as a surprise. Thomas Paine saw Dickinson's request as one of appeasement, where in the eyes of Thomas Paine, John Dickinson's trying to please the crown while undermining the unforeseen realities that still loomed at large. Unforeseen realities like, like the greater imminent, imminency that war is just around the corner. Late 1775 saw Thomas Paine and other supporters of independence 
struggle to win over the minds of men like John Dickinson, whom refused to budge on where they stood with regards to supporting reconciliation amongst king and country. Thomas Paine throws himself back into writing with the help of from Dr. Benjamin Rush. All right, here's another important question here. Uh, given that Dr. Benjamin Rush was so moved by Thomas Paine's writings, whom did he recommend Paine himself send copies to regarding the work he was currently doing? Seems like Dr. Benjamin Rush knows a lot of other uh, political adversaries, and maybe one or two of these men could be in Philadelphia right now themselves. Well, it just so turns out that Dr. Benjamin Rush, was given that he was so impressed by Thomas Paine's writing, he recommends that Paine himself um, distribute his work to men like Benjamin Franklin, Samuel Adams, to David Rittenhouse. And how perfect for Benjamin Franklin and Samuel Adams and David Rittenhouse, because all of these men were strong, ardent supporters behind separation from England. David Rittenhouse didn't go on to sign the Declaration of Independence, folks, but he ha he is one of those men who is a native Philadelphian and knows a lot of the ins and outs, and so therefore he is a man of connections. Late 1775 late 1775 rather marked a time for which Thomas Paine began starting to work on a pamphlet like none other before. To me, that sounds revolutionary right there. When Benjamin Franklin, Samuel Adams, and David Rittenhouse looked at this um, piece of work that Thomas Paine was uh, in the midst of doing, or had already started, they all applauded Paine for having included language in the pamphlet alone that enabled everyday American people or rather, I should say, common folks, to understand complicated political matters. So, in other words, understanding something that might seem complicated isn't going to be confined to just someone from the um, upper levels of society. Now, everyone from all sectors of society will be able to get an understanding or eventual understanding of the political matters before them, through an, through an extraordinary piece of work. Okay, folks, what did Thomas Paine officially publish in Philadelphia on January 10th, 1776? He published a pamphlet titled Common Sense, which Paine himself wrote using a pseudonym name. Well, I think that's smart, because if he actually, if he uses his own actual name, he could, um, his life could really be at stake. Remember what I said from the previous podcast, why many, um, of many men wrote under pseudonym names. They did it for a variety of reasons. One of them was to, um, was to, uh, prevent the, uh, chances of, uh, character defamation lawsuits from happening, but to also protect their own identity. Benjamin Rush, um, I'm sure many of you all are wondering, um, you know, it's one thing to publish something, but don't you have to have someone who is willing to go about printing a book or printing a pamphlet? 
Yes. So Benjamin Rush has connections to a man named Robert Bell, who is a printer and a publisher himself whom went about printing Payne's pamphlet, Common Sense. Hey, these connections are vital, folks. You know, if Benjamin Rush hadn't known Robert Bell, I'm sure Benjamin Rush himself would have known another printer who might have been willing to have done this. But even uh, printers themselves are risking it all. Think about it. It's one thing to publish a document, but at the same time, publishing a document doesn't automatically mean that you might um, come home alive or be safe from unforeseen uh, circumstances. What were some fundamental aspects or understandings behind common sense? Anybody want to take a jab at this? Well, I can give you all some good answers. We all know why the Protestant Reformation took place. That was King Henry VIII of England who um, wanted um, a separation from the Catholic Church in large part because the Pope had refused to grant him an annulment. Of course, King Henry VIII had been married more than once, at least five or six times, but King Henry VIII uh, did not um, did not um, take kindly to the uh, practices of the Catholic Church. So, whereas the Protestant Reformation had focused on religious reforms, Thomas Paine's common sense revolved around around challenging existing political systems including the relationships between the heads of state, in this case, with colonial America, the 13 colonies, and the uh, head of state being 3,000 miles across the ocean, the monarch, George III. So for Thomas Paine, common sense revolves around, the challenge, around challenging existing political systems that include the relationships between heads of state a.k.a. a monarch, and the subjects, a.k.a. the people below. The majority of people uh, living under the monarch consisted of common and uncommon folks whom lived under constant fear that they would be jailed for thinking thoughts outside per what the church and the crown would have deemed being ludicrous. I could see how many people were forced to bite their tongues for so long, knowing that whatever they could have said out in the open or even in private to someone else, all of a sudden could be turned around and used against them. For many of these people, they had no other choice. Think about this, you know, when Thomas Paine was growing up, if his parents, well, especially if his dad went before um, the Duke of Grafton and, um, and complained left and right, the Duke of Grafton could have thrown Thomas Paine's parents and young Thomas out on the streets with no uh, roof above as a means of support. The pamphlet, uh, or rather I should say the pamphlet of common sense was a first. It was a first in many ways. For one, it allowed people from everywhere to challenge a monarch's right to rule, especially in America, where so many have been deprived of basic fundamental rights. Of course, when I think of basic fundamental rights, I think of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and not just so much being deprived of basic fundamental rights, but to where no matter what the masses had to say, their opinions and lives simply didn't matter, given that they were, to those above, living 3,000 miles across the ocean. So in other words, you know, if you are loyal to the crown, 
you don't believe in separation from England. You have business with England. That is, you do business with England from a commercial standpoint, a.k.a. commerce. Then, and if you have no qualms or quarrels with the crown, then you're going to be okay. But if you are one of those individuals who doesn't do a lot of, who does little to no business in terms of commercial business with the crown, and you don't like what the crown and parliament have done, then um, no matter what you express, yes, you can freely express it, but do you think that the people above 3,000 miles are going to seriously take your um, complaints into consideration? No. Whereas other European Enlightenment thinkers had questioned a monarch's power, they didn't advocate complete overthrow. But Thomas Paine's common sense was first of its kind where outright overthrow, or I should say outright removal to abolishing monarchy rule, was clearly cited and listed. To me, that was very, very rebellious. It's one thing to disagree on one or two things that a monarch could do, but to uh, disagree on everything, and not just disagree on everything, but to state that um, it's okay to advocate for the overthrow of a monarch. Yeah, that, um, that would be like the equivalent of a uh, red flag where a nation's national security is in danger. Because if you overthrow the monarch, what are you going to replace it with? It's one thing to uh, vehemently disagree on how uh, Parliament and the Crown have been treating their subjects 3,000 miles across the ocean. But for people in Massachusetts, most notably Boston, where um, the cradle of American independence was born, you know, it's one thing for the Bostonians to not want to have anything to do with the Crown. Okay. If they had it their way and they... Um, removed uh, the crown, or rather I should say if all of colonial America, whom rallied behind Boston, agreed to uh, separating from England, okay, it's one thing to separate, what are you going to replace it with? In other words, what government are you going to have to replace having lived under a monarch, and who's to say that whatever you replace uh, monarchy rule with, are you going to be satisfied with that system of government come a year later? So there are so many unknowns. Yes, it's great for Thomas Paine to come out and say that I'm all for overthrowing and removal of a monarch to abolishing monarchy rule altogether. If we do that, the bigger question remains, what are we going to replace it with? Or what are you going to replace it with? And if you don't have that answer, then I hate to say this, then one is up a creek. But for Thomas Paine, um, he did purposely leave his name off of uh, the pamphlet. And it wasn't so much for identity purposes. The document itself, um, in his eyes, was far more than just about Paine himself, or rather one man's work. But the work itself of uh, common sense, it sought to encompass the greater cause being America's people in their fight to be free from tyrannical rule. So for Payne, this is not I, me, myself. This is us, we, ourselves. This is a greater movement that involves all of America's people, regardless of where they stand in society, 
to be free from tyrannical rule. What prominent uh, group of men whom attended the Continental Congress gatherings were the first to read Common Sense? Well, when I say prominent group of men, that could mean 10 or more men. Well, I'll give you a, a, a hint. It's less than 10 men here. Other men in Philadelphia will read this. But when I think of a prominent group of men, it's got to be small, less than 10, maybe at most five. You want to know who those men were, folks? Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Robert Livingston, Roger Sherman, a committee of five whom would go about preparing the final draft to the Declaration of Independence. Remember, folks, Thomas Jefferson had to revise the Declaration of Independence about 86 times. He didn't do it all by himself. He had assistance, most notably from Benjamin Franklin and uh, John Adams. Yes, Roger Sherman and Robert Livingston assisted, but let's just keep in mind that that uh, that the Declaration of Independence was not uh, successfully done in one draft. So remember, 86 revisions. Besides men of prominent stature, people from all different jobs, whether they were a clergyman, uh, a shopkeeper, they were they all read and at the same time were inspired by common sense. So it's not confined to just one sector of, um, of the greater society. Were there skeptics whom opposed Paine's masterpiece work? Well, is it fair to say that um, even in today's time we can't please everyone? Yes. Did Thomas Paine know in his time that he couldn't please everyone? Yes. So the answer is yes. There were skeptics whom opposed Paine's masterpiece work. The skeptics were those whom remained loyal to England, or I should say to the crown, a.k.a. loyalists. These people still advocated reconciliation. They may not have been diehard loyalists. They could have been really what we call political moderates like John Dickinson. But they but they want to um, still retain the relationship with the crown. So that also means supporting Dickinson's olive branch petition, which basically is going to extend the, the, um, the invitation to say, hey, we want to um, still be a part of the, um, of the empire, but in order, for, uh, in order for there to be a better relationship, you being parliament and the crown have got to stop enacting measures upon us without our consent. If this continues, then there can be no perfect harmony or balance. Well, members of parliament <laughs> read common sense. As a matter of fact, they read common sense over, first before reading John Dickinson's Olive Branch Petition. King George III viewed Thomas Paine's work as treasonous, so much so to where he requested that Parliament strip Thomas Paine's British, British citizenship altogether. That's pretty drastic, but hey, you know what? It doesn't frighten Thomas Paine because, for one, he knows he's in a much better place where he's obviously gotten more opportunity to prosper than perhaps in England, but two, Who's going to enforce that his citizenship be stripped? Think about it. If Thomas Paine doesn't return to England, then even the right to strip him of his citizenship is null and void because he's not living under their soil. Did the Quakers denounce common sense? 
Yes, they viewed Payne's work as a violation to their pacifist views. Remember, folks, the Quakers were the ones who believed in, in, um, in finding all kinds of resolution or all types of resolution, big and small, to where those resolutions were achieved peacefully without resorting to any violence. So for the Quakers, taking up arms against the crown in their eyes would lead to more unrest, meaning that government itself would become exposed to new norms whose boundaries had no limits. Think about it. The government they've lived under has been one that has been able to um, function without any violence. The last thing the Quakers don't need in Philadelphia is mob violence like what's happening to the North in Boston. Well, when I think of the month of March in terms of um, the American Revolution, the first thing that often has come to my mind is the Boston Massacre from March 5th of 1770. But what's important comes six years later in March of 1776, on March the 17th, that is. And it does involve the people of Boston. Well, let me ask you this. Was there a another massacre or was there... Um, was there, um, did it involve departure of uh, troops? Or rather, I should say, did it involve de departure of British troops? Choice B, it involved the, the departure of British troops. British troops began boarding ships out of Boston on March the 17th, that is, out of Boston Harbor, which also included up to a thousand loyalists all of whom abandoned Boston to set sail for Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is part of Canada. And when the British troops left Boston, along with a thousand loyalists, and these were families, uh, individuals who no longer felt that they had a place on American soil anymore, all of these people left to start a new life. It's one thing to start a new life, but it doesn't guarantee that it will be better than what you had before. But for many of these people, many not just for many, all of them, knew that um, they needed a better way out. And living in Boston under all this chaos, under all of this fighting, disruption of what was uh, once, of what didn't exist, it's no longer there anymore. Even those on the Patriot side, folks, um, were forced to evacuate Boston after uh, Bunker Hill. And when they left Boston, they went to the, um, into the uh, countryside, about 50 miles, like most notably Worcester. What did they have to forego? They had to forego um, the most essential of, of belongings, rifles, muskets. And by doing so, that meant that they, had, that they would agree to, um, to no longer take up arms against the crown. Just because you leave, it doesn't mean you get to do it on your terms. The British departure from Boston meant that Massachusetts had become the first American colony to be free of British rule, which now meant that General George Washington and the Continental Army had reason to celebrate their first major victory in America's war for independence. This, uh, this is very exciting. However, celebrating left and right, while well, yes, you can celebrate, the celebrations won't last forever. The British military departure from Boston did lead 
to the Second Continental Congress convening once again in Philadelphia. Interesting enough, on April the 6th of 1776, the Second Continental Congress went as far as opening all American ports from north, middle to south, to ships from all over, with the exception of England. Who do you think might like to, to um, come to American ports? The French. The French haven't entered just yet, but I know that they're itching for some revenge, considering that they were forced to give up all their territory um, in what is now Ohio and along the St. Lawrence River in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. What Virginian uh, was the first to emphatically state that all 13 colonies are to be free and independent states, including dissolving all ties to crown Parliament and the state, a.k.a. England. I'll give you some choices. Was it George Wythe? Was it Richard Henry Lee? Was it Thomas Jefferson or Carter Braxton? The answer is choice um, B, Richard Henry Lee. And I should point out here real quick, folks, that right before um, we officially declared our separation from England... Thomas Jefferson was under that Olive Branch Petition Committee that John Dickinson uh, ran, or I should say sponsored. Even Jefferson himself was a bit skeptical about separating from England at one point. He probably wasn't the first, and he may not have been the last, of some um, prominent forefathers who were hesitant about separating from England, but ultimately, in the end, did change their minds. July 2nd, 1776, the Continental Congress agreed unanimously to Richard Henry Lee's resolution from, from uh, back on uh, June the 7th. So July 2nd, the, the Congress unanimously agrees without any opposition to that, um, that all 13 colonies are to be free and independent states, including dissolving all ties to the crown. But remember, two days later, July 4th, that's when the motion is finally approved. And that's where we get our official day of um, celebration, or America's birthday, July the 4th. Well, three months after Common Sense was first published, roughly 100,000 copies were sold to where nearly all of America's population being 2 million benefited from reading the document in all 13 colonies. And within a year, Thomas Paine's Common Sense had sold 150,000 copies. That is absolutely remarkable. What one document alone could do. For all of the success that is going on now, especially that the British have left Boston is it fair to say, though, that this fight for independence is far from over? That is, not just a fight, rather, but a war for independence. Is the fight over? No. What happened shortly after Congress went about officially declaring separation from England? Early July 1776 saw British warships sail into New York with 10,000 troops, but come August it was more... Warships arrived to where 30,000 troops and counting um, arrived. That's pretty, um, 
what do you call it, alarming and yet uh, very uh, powerful because now the British are serious. They know that we, um, we got them in Boston, but I think it's fair to say that they may not have um, really um, realized in the end that Boston was truly meant to be because it wasn't. But now New York might be for them because New York has a far stronger loyalist population than Boston did. We're, we're almost about ready to wrap this uh, podcast segment up, but um, August of 1776, and this will be discussed in, a little bit more in the next podcast, the Battle of Long Island um, occurred. And the battle for New York, um, I'll just tell you right now, was a debacle for George Washington and the Continental Army. The Battle of Long Island resulted in the killing or wounding of close to one-third of Washington's army, 33%. And if that's not bad enough, um, a handful of generals, not a handful, but a, a select number were captured by British forces. One captured American general was sent to Philadelphia deliberately with orders to instruct Congress to revoke the Declaration of Independence and reaffirm all loyalties to England. That's pretty threatening right there when one of your own gets sent to Philadelphia, where the capital is, and says to the men, whom he was uh, supposed to um, serve with the utmost loyalty, that is to, to America, he's now saying that, hey, look, if we don't revoke the Declaration of Independence and don't reaffirm our loyalties to England, there will be more dire consequences that will follow. Well, what does Thomas Paine do, folks? He vehemently opposed what this American general did. And instead, he goes from... I, should, I take it back. He will still write, but he will, at the same time while writing, he's going to also pursue a new course, and that is to fight for America on the battlefield. This is a man who's not going to sit back and let a tyrant 3,000 miles away stomp over her subjects. And for Thomas Paine, this is, this is business. This is, in a sense, like payback, retribution. So, for Thomas Paine, he's going to uh, choose to fight. He's never been a fighter before. I mean, yes, he was a, um, yes, he was aboard a Navy ship in the um, Seven Years' War. But you know what? Sometimes um, desperate measures, sometimes desperate um, times call for desperate measures, and this is one of them. Thomas Paine's not going to leave anything on the table to chance, and he is going to fight for America on the battlefield. So when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk more about Thomas Paine's time serving in the battlefield, but the battle that he serves in or fights in is going to be one that is going to test America's soul even more as a young nation whom has just done something drastic by officially declaring her separation from England. And we'll also have to wonder for ourselves, it's one thing now that America did declare her separation from England, but will the document, a.k.a. the Declaration of Independence, now hold any true significant meaning even after the debacle at New York? 
Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air again soon. I would hope to be back on the air before New Year's uh, Day, but if not, uh, my, uh, my goal will be to get back with you all on the air sometime right after the new year has begun. Thank you as always for listening. Take care and uh, stay safe.